millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the Progressive Britain podcast. This is a podcast with the opinion that progressive politics can change the world. I'm your host, Hannah Shah, and this week I bring you Stefan's interview with Tim Dixon, who is co-founder of More in Common, an amazing organisation that is working internationally to counter populist narratives and build a resilient global community. Enjoy, and remember, if you like this podcast, please, please share away. Leave us a rating on iTunes, email your uncle who loves to chat politics, or... Send it to your crush on Instagram. Whatever floats your boat. Our country feels more divided than ever. But do we know why? And do we have any solutions to bring us together? Today, I'm joined by Tim Dixon from More in Common to talk about how he's using social psychology to understand why we've become so divided and whether Brexit might just be the tip of the iceberg. So Tim, thanks for joining us. Great to join you. I want to start with you. So could you tell us a little bit about how you became so interested in this social fracturing? Yeah, and I have a, a sort of long background in politics. I grew up in Australia. Um, I was the Prime Minister's speechwriter for a couple of um, Labour Prime Ministers, Kevin Rudd and Julia Gillard, um, and had several years in, in in that world. So lots of commonality. I mean, our sort of sister party very much is the Labour Party in, here. And in fact, uh, we the Australian Labour Party was essentially a creation of the British Labour Party. Um, so I had that background, my own personal background. I was uh, trained as an economist. I had a business. I oddly have written Australia's best-selling economics textbook, so I'm responsible for giving night traumas to a lot of <laughs> students over there. Um, uh, but then uh, I was trained as a lawyer as well. I worked in, in the tech sector at around the time of the dot-com boom, um, uh, then in politics and in a kind of communications role. And since 2010, when I moved to New York, and then 2014 in London, my work has been around really social movement building. So creating new organisations to deal with new challenges. And it's in that context that um, the More in Common initiative um, came about. Initially, actually, we were working on the issue of refugees um, and the dynamics of the immigration debates. Uh, but circumstances have changed quite radically in the last few years. So I'm interested there in the sense that a lot of the work you do now is kind of about overseeing the political arena and kind of being above it and looking down on it. But actually, the kind of steps you took to this position were quite political. And so this is quite political for you in a way. Yeah. And I mean, I think in part the work that I'm doing now, if the world of politics was 
a little more stable, less disrupted, and I felt more confident about the system going in the right direction, um, I would probably still be involved in in the sort of core of party politics. I think the threat that we're now the threats we're now facing, the disruption, are systemic. They they go outside of just the the, the individual parties uh, all across the world. We're seeing the collapse of the, the the party structures of established democracies. Actually, in the English-speaking world, we're a little insulated from that for different reasons. The United Kingdom, the United States, Australia, Canada, New Zealand have been relatively stable, whereas just about every European democracy uh, is experiencing much more disruption. And the centre-left party, the traditional centre-left party, is you know heading towards ten percent or less in many countries. So that that sort of period of dramatic change is something that has motivated me to think of the the bigger systemic challenges. So I want to kind of delve into that a little bit now because um, the thing that um, those countries you mentioned have in common or having come to a certain extent is their parliamentary systems. And I kind of wanted to ask you how that's relevant to the social fracturing that we see and the strains that we have on those parliamentary systems. So for example, here in the UK, our parliamentary parties tend to be quite broad and quite strong. And that's one of the reasons why we don't have the UK Independence Party having loads of seats in the Houses of Parliament. But at the same time, at the moment, these two main parties are kind of turned slightly inwards towards a smaller group of members who are culturally very different to each other when you look at the kind of Labour Party base and the Conservative Party base. How much is that strain on our parliamentary system playing in to what you see as a social fracturing in our country? And I guess before you answer that, could you just tell us what you mean in your work by that social fracturing? This is the larger phenomenon of what's happening in the world now. So, you know, there are there are there are fascinating conversations to be had about the role that electoral systems, parliamentary systems have in mediating conflict, basically, in societies. But the interesting thing is that you know, you've got very different countries that are they're all basically dealing in different ways with the same phenomena at this stage. So the the privilege of the work that I've done because I've been working internationally for most of the last decade is that everywhere I go, the conversation is like in the United States, the conversation is very dominated by, you know, the extraordinary disruption of the personality of Trump. And yet, uh, to me, two thirds of what they're dealing with is exactly the same dynamics that we're dealing with Brexit in the United Kingdom. It's very, very similar, uh, but again, mediated in different ways. France, Germany, you know, in Australia where I grew up, etc. The this profound disruption and what what's happening. I mean, at the surface level, you can look at it as a as the political disruption because we're seeing, you know, in the French uh, presidential elections last year, the two main parties that have dominated for the last half century were knocked out. We're not even in the final round. Um, and you can think of you know any number of look at the populist government in Italy. You can look all across the world at examples of this. But what underlying what is underlying all of this? We don't see it. We've done a ton of research, probably about $2 million worth of research on all of this uh, in the last couple of years with a focus on six countries where we've really focused less on the politics and the political system and more on the people. So what's driving people's perceptions of each other? And the, the characteristics of this moment are a profound loss of faith in the system and anger at the status quo. Um, a belief that the the system, the status quo, is not working, is not delivering for them. Um, obviously, this is related to the economic factors of rising inequality, the changes in the labour market, the insecurity of jobs, people's loss of status at work as well, rapid cultural change, 
Uh, and social media is obviously profoundly changing the way we get information about news and interact with each other. But all of these factors and more add up to a sense of a fractured society where we, we feel more distant from each other, more distrustful, and us versus them narratives, which is what's at the core of um, populism, especially far-right populism, is taking hold everywhere. And it's defining the world in terms of, you know, people on my side, my tribe versus my enemies. It's elevating this idea of someone as a threat. And that changes the whole way in which we, we no longer have debates about issues. We're really having tribal debates about identity. And those are ultimately very dangerous because if you talk to any people who've spent their lives working in places like the Congo or in Rwanda or, uh, you know, highly divided, deeply divided societies which resort to sort of violent conflict. These are the things that happen when countries are on the journey of you know, polarisation, on the journey towards the breakdown of their systems. Now, it's not to say parliamentary democracies are incredibly resilient. The Westminster system is, is such a historical gift um, to us. And I would argue, you know, Westminster system, so much, it's working so much better in the United Kingdom than, for example, the, the presidential system is now in the United States. Um, but even so, the forces that are dividing us, are driving us apart, are remarkably strong. And so regardless of the system, we're all dealing with this and it poses an existential threat to democracy. I don't believe that we should have the overconfidence that our societies will always hold together in the way that they have in the last 100 years or more. The history of human societies actually is fracture and... Um, and tribalism. Um, and there's so many changes bearing down on our country um, and, you know, Western countries, but all across the world, result of globalisation and many other things, um, that we we need to stand back and say, maybe the risk is so profound, not for this year or next year, you know, stand back from the Brexit crisis, because I think Brexit is just the, the debate in the United Kingdom that is mediating something larger. And our work and what's drawn me into the more in common work is to say, what do we do in this generation? What are the things that we can do that hold a society together and that make it function successfully in a context that's now very different to the one that, you know, we that has defined the way that we see politics from the the last, you know, the post-Second World War era. So you talk about these larger forces in our politics, like you say, that go beyond Brexit and extend across boundaries. I mean I guess I want to know, where did these forces come from? Is there anywhere we can pinpoint where they started or where they appeared or have they really always been there? Well, there's always conflict and disagreement in the way that humans interact with each other, but there are a whole bunch of measures that you can use to show that what we're dealing with now is, you know, of a remarkably different order. Um, so, uh, you know, one measure is just people's trust in each other, the social trust measures, um, which in most countries now are, you know, at their worst. Uh, another is their trust in institutions, in government, in democracy, etc. Again, you know, the worst that we've seen uh, in our lifetimes and going back to really the pre-Second World War era. Um, you can look at the the way in which the parliamentary the 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 vote votes are shifting and shifting dramatically. You can see the rise of hate crimes, see the entry of you know the far right parties that are. Uh, I mean, look, Vox for example in Spain, unknown twelve months ago, now getting twenty percent of the vote. So there's any number of phenomena like that that you can point to. Um, but you know the drivers of this, I think, are 
you know, we tend to, if your focus in all your life has been the economic issues and inequality, you'll focus on those things. If you've if you've worked in a union in your life, you'll look at them through the context of the labour market and the um, not just the insecurity of jobs, but the fact that jobs don't give people a sense of belonging or pride or autonomy, the kind of, you know, the James Bloodworth's book re- that recently came out, for example, that talks about, uh, about the, the, those changes. If you look at it, if you have more of a cultural lens and you've worked in the immigration areas or refugees, you see it through the lens of the attacks on immigrant communities, minorities, the racial justice issues. If your interest is technology, social media, you see it in the way that, uh, you know, not just disinformation and fake news, but just the way in which political conflict has now become so much more antagonistic and extremes have been brought into the mainstream in ways that, you know, look at the debates on anti-Semitism, for example. Um, so, you know, there's lots of different ways that you can cut that. I think what this, the way that I would summarise it in a sentence is that there are a set of forces that are coming together that are driving us apart. And those forces are stronger than the forces that are holding us together right now. And that a, a society not only just doesn't prosper when that's the case, but it's at serious risk of quite fundamental parts of our, our democracy and our system breaking down. So there's all these forces and they're driving us further apart. And then there was that, that kind of seems like the Tinder and then in many ways in our country, the kind of match that was lit was a Brexit vote. What was it like for you knowing all that you do watching the Brexit vote play out? What kind of these forces did you see? Well, I was, uh, I mean, the, the, the most important experience that I had in all of that time by, you know, a millionfold factor was that uh, I was a friend of Joe Cox. And so Joe's murder happened, you know, uh, just a week before the the Brexit vote. Um, And I guess that was partly a reflection of the the way in which the debate had just gone so much off course. Um, And I think that it was I don't know whether you want to say an early warning sign now, but it's you know it's almost three years ago. But it's a reflection of the way that uh, political debate and engagement has been deteriorating all around the world in the last few years, and the uh, you know the increased sort of violence on the street. Um, that surprised me because the it's not kind of consistent with the character of and the best character of British politics and political engagement, which has always been robust. I mean, there's no parliamentary chamber in the world like the House of Commons. And for somebody like, you know, look, I spent many years in the Australian parliamentary chamber, which is a um, a place of robust debate. But I remember watching during the Iraq war debate, you know, staying up all the way through the night watching that debate and thinking this is just, you know, I mean, I thought oh, what a terrible decision, but, but it was just an amazing display of the strength the quality of debate and also what has always, I think, been a great strength of the British system is the fact that the party discipline hasn't been so tight that you don't get a Robin Cook debating against his party's position or a Ken Clark debating against his. Um, So that sense of, you know, independent minds. Now, the, the good thing is, that's still there now, <laughs> but it's in a sort of slightly different context where um, there's, there's, you know, a, a lot more of the extremes are, are, are evident. So, look, I think um, the the thing that I would stand I would stand back from the the details of the um, Brexit debate before we sort of plough into back into them, and just say the thing that best explains to me what is happening in the Brexit debate is understanding more of the social psychology of what's happening because this it, there's an amazing moment in the Brexit the uncivil war the um, 
the docudrama that was uh, was on recently, where at the it's about two thirds of the way through the uh, the show, and there's they show a focus group, and there's a moment where a woman who's in that focus group from a a left behind community we might call it, um, who just totally freaks out and just has a meltdown, and she is being accused essentially of a, a kind of not caring about the impact of her vote, her leave vote on the country. Um, and, you know, it's okay for you because your life is over. She's a little bit older. She freaks out and basically sort of says that she just hates being treated as worthless and this profound sense of disrespect that she has felt. Now, I think that is at the heart of the the dynamics that populists are exploiting. It's a sense of being felt, being discarded uh, which is what what change in the labour market are doing, but it's also what culture is doing. And one of the interesting parts of our work is realizing how much the 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 way in which the sort of cosmopolitan liberal progressive um, debate often has taken course in the last 20, 30 years has marginalized those people who traditionally actually were, you know, the bedrock of a of a centre-left vote. Um, and they feel you know, it, it is a lot more than a story of white working class resentment. Actually, it's, you know, the feeling of being discarded and worthlessness is, you know, crosses all the racial um, barriers. And what our research has shown is that if you you can actually see so much similarity in the psychological impact and the psychological processes of fracturing that cross all of the demographic and racial boundaries and that emphasise our common humanity, but also emphasise how the system is not working and the system is breaking. And a system doesn't sustain itself when large numbers of people feel that they are, uh, you know, worth nothing um, and that their voice, that they have no choice and autonomy. Um, and they fall then into... Uh, they, they also feel profoundly insecure and they fall into a, a state of a kind of vulnerability to a populist coming along who says, you know, you're right, I'm on your side, you know, you're part of my tribe. The the real thing that's happening is that these people, migrants, whoever, whichever group, um, you know, are defined as the other, um, are taking these things from you, taking your job, taking your housing, taking your benefits, Um and, and then you make this us versus them story and psychologically you're in a state of vulnerability and you can buy into, uh, into that. Uh, and that's, that's the genesis, um, you know, kind of cutting three years of research into uh, 10 minutes, but that's the genesis of what the More in Common work is around is trying to speak to this need for identity and belonging recognising the big factors that are at play because there has to be change in our economies, there has to be change in, um, in structural aspects of work, et cetera. But, but we, we won't get to even dealing with the big generational challenges like climate, for example, um, if, we don't have a, if we don't believe that we're part of the same society, if we don't have a belief that there is kind of some collective interest in you know, the common good. And that's what's breaking down in this era of, of tribalism. And so with all these pressing challenges, like you said, climate change and stuff like that, it seems like it's really important to get us all around the same table. And a lot of the resentment you've been talking about speaks to a sense of being disempowered, I guess. And so I think if you had the ear of the prime minister or a future prime minister, what's, what's the overarching strategy to get us all back around the table? Is it about fundamentally empowerment or is it something more than that? I think the great challenge is that the next 
look, at least the next decade, for as far as we can see, the forces that are fracturing our societies are going to be intensifying. So I think that when you think of the lens of all the challenges, the lens through which we should look at the challenges facing our societies, climate has got to be absolutely at the top there because it is you know, an existential challenge to human life and to um, our, uh, our planet and will hit the people on the front line most affected are going to be the poorest and most vulnerable. Uh, but I think alongside that, it's this issue of the fracturing, fragmentation of our societies because we have many fundamental challenges to deal with at a collective level and if we don't believe that there is a common good and that, you know, you have my back and I have yours and that our best interests are actually where we work together, even though we might have quite different beliefs about some quite fundamental issues. But if we don't believe that the, we do have more in common than what divides us, then we will not get to addressing, you know, any of those problems. So, uh, you know, this is not a matter of a kind of a mushy middle approach of kumbaya and, you know, we all um, uh, hug each other. Uh, There's real difference. I mean, this is what the report that we just released, United States, the Hidden Tribes Study of Polarisation in America. We are doing two things there. We are saying there are... Uh, people have more in common what divide, than what divides us. And most Americans, 77% say, you know, our differences aren't so great that we can't overcome uh, our differences and work together. But also we're saying, but you've got to understand there are real differences of belief between people and understanding that they're around values and how people see the world. We have to, we have to get beyond screaming at each other uh, on Twitter um, and, and also, like, just thinking that it's about civility and, and politeness. I think that understanding that there are beliefs that underpin differences and being able to navigate that is really quite critical. So that's one aspect of our work is understanding how you open up those those conversations in, in healthy and, and productive ways. And based on that research, could you give us a sense of where that breakdown is in terms of con- in concrete examples, what those things that are, you know, uniting us and what those things and what those values and beliefs that are divide, dividing us and whether that, you know, sits geographically or with age or whatever else. Yeah. So what we did in the Hidden Tribe study was we look at five areas of underlying beliefs and it's all informed by um, social psychology of the last 20 years or so. Um, so one uh, group of um, um, sort of analytical tools we use is the moral foundations work that Jonathan Haidt has um, popularised with the righteous mind. So he talks about how some people look at the world with a priority on the values of protecting people from harm um, and freedom versus or liberty versus oppression, uh, and others look at the world more with an emphasis on the importance of um, authority, that is we should all play by the same rules, um, the idea of loyalty that we should be you know, look after each other. It's a more kind of tribal thing. There's traditional sort of family values um, and the value of sanctity or purity, which is there are some things that are sacred, the flag, uh, the cross, you know, goes into religion, but but beyond that as well. Um, and what we've found is that's one area we also look at people's belief in how much individuals control their own circumstances versus social forces shape their lives. We look at people's sensitivity to fear and how much people feel insecure and a couple of other things. Parenting habits, weirdly, are also a very useful thing to ask and that tell us a lot. Now, what's interesting about this research is, so we ask all of those questions. We segment the American population into seven tribes or groups based purely on 
the answers to those questions of psychology, not any questions about current politics. We then ran that analysis back through all of the current debates happening in the United States. And there is a stronger relationship between the psychology, what drives people, than any demographic that you can think of, you know, race, gender, age, all of those things. And in fact, the seven tribes follow a remarkably consistent pattern on every issue. And you suddenly realize, hang on, People are not actually thinking about the border wall when you ask about the border wall or about DACA or about um, police brutality or the role of feminists or whatever. Even though they feel like they're separate debates, they're actually essentially the product of tribalism and the, and the product of your kind of tribal attachments and beliefs. And that analysis to, to us was a breakthrough in helping to understand okay, this is where people are coming from. We need to understand more the things that are upstream. A lot of these debates are downstream, but our, our values and identity is upstream. So that seems to, put, to kind of provide a difficulty in the sense that it's not going to be necessarily policy positions or like a policy silver bullet that unites people. But does that provide an opportunity in the sense that, and this is probably a gross simplification, but that the right person, the right language, the right framing of our values is something that could start to bind this country together? Is it? Is it in that sense of feeling together and building that sense of solidarity that we're going to do it? Or is it you know, more complicated and multi-layered? Do you have a sense of how we're going to do this? The fascinating thing is that you know, there's a whole um, ton of literature around citizen juries and deliberative polling and, even, and lots of one-to-one -one experience, uh, experiments where people who've got really different views sit down together you know, in a context where they're not screaming at each other um, and have a conversation for an hour or two, understand where each other is coming from and, you know, vigorously committed leavers and vigorously committed remainers can actually find that I understand more of what where you're coming from. And this experience is just repeated in every context around the world where there's human contact. Now, why does that happen? Because you get beyond thinking someone, thinking of someone purely from the lens of their issue position and you realise there are values or beliefs behind that. Now, you may not agree with them, but you get to that point of, oh, I see where you're coming from. I see the thing. So that's what really we're trying to do with this deeper social psychology research. A lot of people who hold more conservative views um, are just motivated by a different set of values and those values are not wrong values. They're different. They value loyalty. Traditional communities do value, for example, group loyalty more strongly than uh, people like me who, you know, are highly autonomous and have lived in different, lots of different countries and done their own thing. And, uh, you know, it's a different it, – neither of those things is right or wrong, I don't think. Um, so th there's obviously like there's a rich, detailed conversation about those values, but that's where we end up is understanding that if we can – if let's say on the immigration issues, issues where, I mean, if, if you reduce it down to something that sounds a little bit more tactical, if you have a framework around immigration policy that addresses people's anxieties, are these people going to belong? Is there a consistent set of rules in our country? Are people not just coming in willy-nilly? Um, are, are, are we all being treated in a fair and equal way so people, one group isn't being preferred above another? Um, Actually, if you address those sorts of concerns, which are more the kind of conservative concerns in the Moral Foundation's work, the majority of people with more conservative disposition are actually pro-refugee um, and think they do have a responsibility as a country to um, shoulder some of the responsibility to 
address the the crisis of people fleeing uh, you know war and, and uh, persecution. And the point about this is, look, yes, there is absolutely a ten percent or so, uh, whatever number it is, at any at either end of the spectrum. Uh, there are there is general racial genuine racial prejudice. Um, there is hatred. But most of the people, the vast majority, who are sort of on one side versus another of these arguments are just not that extreme. And this is the problem that what's happened in a, particularly because of the the social media, um, you know, screaming at each other on Twitter and Facebook, et cetera, it's it's, uh, silencing the, the majority who have got concerns one way or another, but who are just not black and white in the way that they think. And this is not, I have to say, an argument for centrism. It's an argument for respect for other humans. And there is genuinely more common ground. And you can see it in a, in a good, healthy parliamentary process, which still sometimes happens in the United Kingdom. I mean, as an example, when Joe was killed, the way in which people in politics came around, I mean, I saw it knowing uh, Brendan and, and the, the kids and family, um, the way in which politics was genuinely put aside was profoundly moving for me and somebody who had you know, worked in a different political context. I think it showed to me many of the, the profound strengths of British parliamentary democracy. And, it, and it's very much a characteristic of sort of the British debate that we put ourselves down and we, we criticise our system, we think it's the worst. But look, there are really great strengths in this system. And actually, I would argue... You know, many of those elements are not, they have been diminishing in the United States and they are stronger here, albeit things are definitely deteriorating. So there is, there is still some hope despite that sense of the deterioration in the system. So looking at it in that broader sense that um, your work so much focuses on, I'm really interested to hear what you think about how this chapter in our history is going to be written. And I know it feels very much that we're kind of halfway through that chapter and we've still got a long way to go. But um, a lot of the debates around things like anti-Semitism and that kind of that low level, once low level anti-Semitism that's starting to build, um, speaking to a lot of people I know in the Jewish community, it doesn't, trying to pinpoint it is difficult, but it doesn't quite feel like a pre-Second World War, but we almost feel like we're at the beginning of that 20th century, that that slow kind of momentum that's building up with these forces. Where do you think we kind of sit relative to that? And I guess, yeah, like I said, how is this chapter in history going to be written? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that we are, that we will in the future look back and say this period, um, you know, leading into the 2020s was pre-something, was the, f- the time before something. Um, look, and it's easy. Obviously, we always go back to the most recent major events in in history. So we say, you know, fascism or we say the First World War or whatever. It, it probably is like a 1910. Um, that is to say that the, the there is so much profound change happening at a systemic level and so much of our institutional structures are breaking down um, that this is pre-something. Um, to that extent, I do think we have to see Brexit within that larger context because I just don't think it's primarily about the debate about membership of the European Union, although it touches on lots of these issues. 
I'm also definitely not of the Pollyanna-ish view that's like, oh, well, you know, to build a new great system, the old one needs to break down. No, because what's going on is incredibly dangerous. Our ability to manage difference among ourselves is breaking down. That's what happens before really bad things happen in human societies. Um, that said, who knows what that is? Um, I also think that if we marshal our energies around this challenge of fracturing and fragmentation, um, which has a thousand really practical implications, one really central one is this, from an international perspective, the United Kingdom has a huge problem with the London-centric nature of everything. Um, and the regions versus the cosmopolitan sort of city centre and the one city is a is a big challenge that needs to be front and centre of uh, policy changes, you know, and there's a lot more. But if we marshal our energies to address social fracturing, to find ways of strengthening commonality, there is no silver bullet. It has implications for housing policy, for transport policy, for what we do in the labour market, for social protections. It has implications for how corporates manage their workforces. It has a lot of implications at the localised level. Schooling and how we make sure that people are exposed to difference and are not tribalised through the schooling education processes. Media and how we ensure uh, the survival of local media and responsible media and address the fake news problem. The technology of social media, um, you know, because you can actually reward positive conduct rather than rewarding all the bad stuff, which is how currently the algorithms work. You know, so there's a, there's a lot that needs to be done. I think this is like climate. This is like a multi-level uh, generational challenge. Our work is to play a little bit of a role in being a catalyst to make people focus on this central concern because, in a sense, nothing else happens if a society's ability to manage difference breaks down. Um, and and we're, we're kind of a bit of a lab to find out what are the most effective things that can strengthen those forces that hold us together um, and create a better future because, you know, there's also a lot of opportunity amidst change. Um, some of the structures that are breaking down aren't great structures, right? So there is opportunity in all of that. Um, but that's that's our work and we're hoping that by also having a lens of we're focused on Britain, the United States, France and Germany, four of the largest democracies, and learning just as the far right, the fracturing forces are spreading their knowledge and are super well-networked, our work is also to be well-networked, to work collaboratively. And when we see things that are working in one place, in one community, can we spread those quickly to other places? Because I do think that we've got limited time. These forces are working quickly. Um, so it's an urgent call to arms. Well, that's quite a concerning way of putting it. And there was a lot in that, which is, you know, huge challenges and huge problems. Um, I just want to finish by asking you where you find hope in all of this, because I've tried listening to you to kind of see where the kind of, you know, small bits of hope and light perhaps are. And I think it does exist. But, you know, as somebody who is so experienced and has so much knowledge in this, where do you find hope in a very kind of concrete level, but also in a personal level? Well, it's fascinating. One of the things that I found in the, we've done a lot of facilitating community conversations, focus groups, et cetera, um, around the, in different countries. And the fascinating thing is that when people, when you put all the national politics and the big debates and the huge overwhelming kind of pace of change stuff aside and people come together, their sense of common interest actually does emerge quite quickly. 
So conversations can still be really healthy at a local level. And, you know, there are vibrantly healthy communities um, in many p places that you wouldn't expect to find them. Um, you know, civil society is still resilient, um, whether that's uh, great schools or it's strong church communities or it's local branches of political parties or uh, it's different initiatives that bring people from quite different parts of a community together. So I think that is a source of hope. I think that the um, the fact that, you know, historically we have weathered massive changes before. The pace of the, like the Industrial Revolution created a huge tumult in uh, British society. In fact, you know, me with my Australian accent, like why is Australia Australia? Because uh, the social system in Britain was breaking down and a whole lot of people were then sent to another country to kind of um, as the, the overload from that society. Um, but then you had a period of liberal reform in the 19th century that actually made massive progress. So, uh, you know, it doesn't always end with chop off the heads um, as it <laughs> did in France. Um, it, it might in France. <laughs> Um, so, look, uh, you know, historically we have dealt with massive challenges before and I think it's helpful to have that larger sense of, yes, you know, in each generation we confront a different set of challenges. I guess, you know, you can do nothing more than the best that you can for your in your time and place. Part of my appeal is to say for me as somebody who's absolutely, you know, has a background as being tribally labour and, you know, that's been much of my life. But a really important part of this is to get beyond my own tribalism, and I still believe everything that I believe, but I also think it's really critical to be building bridges to people who see things differently and understand them because I think that has now become so central to our ability to make progress as, as, as people. Well, Tim, I know one thing that we both have in common is that we could talk about this for hours, but I think we're going to have to cut us, cut us off there. Thank you so much for speaking to us and all the best with your work. Thanks very much, Devin. Great to join you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Thanks to Tim for the brilliant interview and thank you for listening. We'll be back on Friday, but until then, have a lovely week.
been listening to the Progressive Britain podcast. The music was One in the West by Blue Dot Sessions, licensed under Creative Commons, and many thanks for our fantastic and long-suffering producer, Caroline Crampton. Mm-hmm.